Hello and welcome to Vet Club, IVEX edition. This is Vet Club and we're going to, um, what what topic? Like, I mean, you're supposed to talk about a medicine thing. Right, we but, talked no, about I am, but like what, what show type is it? I forget. Vet Talk. Vet Talk. Okay, we're doing a Vet Talk. That's what I meant. Like I don't They're remember the, same. the category. Yeah, that's true. Do we, don't you label them differently? Yeah. Okay. So if somebody's like... Forget all those weekly updates. We want to listen to that. We we just want to listen to the talks or the yeah. journals or. I don't know if it's searchable. I don't know how any of that works. Oh really? <laughs> you're the producer. And you're like I don't know how any of this works. <laughs> that reminded me very much of Norm Macdonald. Not like the voice, like that when you do the Norm Macdonald like impression, but just like the the way. It is. This is my uh, this is my job. I don't, I don't know. So somebody told me that I'm a I comedian. I don't, I don't know any of that works. I thought I was up here giving lectures, <laughs> doing them TED talks. Yeah. Um, I'll be gosh darn. So whatever this show is called, um, thanks for listening. Glad you found it. Or if like you did talk eighty or something. Yeah. If you didn't mean to be listening to this, hang in there. It'll get better. <laughs> Maybe not. Um, okay. So we are still at Ivex though. So this is our second show that we're recording at IVEX in Colorado. Um, but this time we're going to talk about, um, we're, we're going to talk about a medicine topic, like a medical topic. And it's going to be partly based on one of the sessions I gave. Um, and, but also like more broad than that, because I was really excited that there were several sessions at IVEX this year, um, that talked about fluid therapy specifically in relation to don't give too much. Um, and if you have give, you know, given too much, like, which it, it's easy to do, um, it's okay, but do something about it. So, yeah. Can you just give them those um, things that come in the shoebox? What? The, like, oh, the desiccants? Yeah. <laughs> yes. In fact, that's exactly right. We grind those up with a mortar and pestle, and then we sprinkle them under the eyelids of the patients, and then it cures everything. Yeah, I saw that on the internet once. So, no, <laughs> don't give them the things to keep your shoes from, I guess getting too Holding. moist uh, yeah um no uh the so my session was on fluid overload and the gut specifically because the theme for ivex this year was the gastrointestinal system um which the moderator for my session i forgot to tell you this um so the moderator for my session made a joke and it was it was pretty good it was like a dad joke and it was great and i loved it because i love dad jokes but it was like um yeah if you're here for this session you have reached the gastrointestinal tract which is what we call like in medicine, everything like esophagus, stomach, it's the GI tract. Yeah. And in, it was like the track, like in like the sessions, the, they have like, oh, this is the, you know, technician track or the surgery track or blah, blah, blah. And this, it, it, was, it was really funny. Okay. I guess I just don't get it. You don't get it. I was like, it's a lecture about gastrointestinal no, stuff. No, so. it was like that, like the series of lectures for the day were in the GI. Oh, but you just <sighs> said it was the theme. Isn't that this? Sorry. Yeah, it was the theme for the whole conference. But people but not, didn't do it. But not everything in the conference was the GI track. Okay. So, anyway, it was much funnier. Maybe my delivery was just Nerd. really bad. <laughs> I had maybe my delivery was not very good. At any rate, so um, my when I submitted mine, I was like, oh, it's gastrointestinal theme for IVEX this year. Um, yeah, I'll talk about something that you know is important to me, which is you know fluid therapy and conscientious fluid therapy. And so let's talk about it specifically in the gut. And they were like, sure, do that. Um, but then other people were talking about it like in the kidney and then just kind of in general. So, um, so again, it was, it was nice that um, it's just always nice to hang around with 
Um, and just be reminded that like, I'm not the only person preaching <laughs> this mm-hmm. stuff and be like, there's so much evidence out there. Um, and, and again, y- you still, there's a lot of evidence and it's not always like slam dunk, clear cut, do this, do that. I don't think you've said evidence of what yet. Uh, oh, that fluid overload is bad. Yeah, there we go. Okay. <laughs> I knew what you were talking about. That's a good point. No, 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 that's a good did. point. Fluid overload is bad. Um, fluid underload is also bad. So I, I tried to emphasize that point because I think um, I've talked about this at a number different of different lectures. I did a VEX webinar um, earlier in the year or late last year, I don't remember, um, and several other um, CE conferences that I have presented at because, again, I think it's it's super important and like people that are practicing don't have time to read hundreds of articles. And there's uh, a few things in veterinary medicine, but a lot of this is um, in human medicine still. Well, it's still, but like um, we, we are still catching up because they have a lot more money and, than we do and, and just, and a lot more people and resources and things. So we don't have nearly as much direct veterinary evidence for this, but there's just so much out there. And so I think it's really important to talk about it at these things to make people more aware. And then they can go and do their own investigations and look at the literature. But it's nice to come to a place where people are like, oh yeah, like like we're all talking about this. Um, so that like, it's not the kind of thing, I'm not like a journalist who wants to scoop this. Like I don't, there's no, there's no gotcha. Like, aha, I'm the first one. Like, no, I want everyone to be talking about this um, because then everyone can just do a little bit better, right? We can just elevate the the type of practice we have so um i guess a good analogy would be um so like if you put your patient in an oxygen cage mm-hmm. but what if more oxygen was better and i just hooked it out to like a compressed air thing that just like <laughs> it's like oh you twice know maintenance like air and it's like they call it hyperbaric oxygen and actually some people really like that yeah, but hyperbaric's a little different. Oh, okay. Well, no, it's true. 100% oxygen. If you continuously breathe 100% oxygen, but I mean, it's I mean just like air. Like, I gave oh. you twice the volume of air. Yeah, you'll blow your lungs up. <laughs> you just like yeah. inflate the air. Too much water. Like, too much of anything is not good. We we know this. Um, and anybody who doesn't know this and tries it out for themselves often kills themselves, like, accidentally. Like, yeah, a little bit of this, a little bit of that. Or, or they get really sick if they're lucky and they don't, um, they don't die. They, like, oh, it turns out, you know, too too much um you know too many bananas can cause hyperkalemia or too much potassium <laughs> there's a instagram going around it's like some guy ate 413 chicken nuggets and then in what time frame in like a sitting i was like because i've done that at least in my lifetime <laughs> and um in one sitting. and like, i forget what happened to him like he may have died or he just like had a seizure or something mm-hmm. and then the it's followed up by the comments like so 412 is the number oh <laughs> You know, it's interesting though, because like they have like hot dog eating contests and things like that. And it seems like 413, I don't know how, like what a standard yeah, I number, for, I don't know what a standard number for hot dogs are. The wedding like, number is like high sixties, low seventies. Oh, okay. Okay. In three minutes, I think. But like one or, or two, like two hot dogs, one hot dog is probably like two or three chicken nuggets. Yeah. I mean, that's like 120 chicken. I don't know. Um, maybe those hot dog eating contests are, are also unsafe. Yeah. Um, they pretty sure they are, are for a normal person. Oh, yeah. Well, yeah. And yeah, not everybody's Joey Chestnut. That's super odd that you know the name of what? A, everybody knows Joey Chestnut. Uh, He's one clearly of like not because eight I Eight times know. in a row. Eight. What? Oh, you probably remember when it was Kobayashi. 
<laughs> no, Kobayashi sounds is like the the fake name that was used in The Usual Suspects. Yeah. That's what I think of when He's I think the of guy Kobayashi. That before Joey Chestnut. Joey yeah. Chestnut took over. Joey Chestnut's a good name, though. I do like that. It sounds made up. Sounds yeah. like you just made. That might be like a pseudonym because, you know, he's a. So back to the medicine. Um, so here's the thing. Uh, hypovolemia, right, is bad. We know that. Um, hypovolemic shock is bad. Poor perfusion, organs start to die, like, is bad. We need to treat that. Um, aggressive treatment of hypovolemia is important. And that that is true. Like there's, there's no, you know, getting around that. Now we can get into the nuance of what fluid to use and what rate and how do you decide how much and what are your target endpoints? Like, yes, those are conversations we can and should have. Um, but like, we're not disagreeing that hypovolemia is bad. Uh, but I think for a very long time, the adverse effects of hypervolemia are more subtle than those of hypovolemia and are probably less immediately life-threatening. Like if you were missing... If you quickly lost, you know, 10 to 12% of your body volume is, is water, like quickly, you would be in trouble. Um, you know, I don't, I don't even know how much you could tolerate losing quickly, even if it was just like water and electrolytes, not blood loss um, per se. Like that would, that would be really bad. Um, but if you gain that much in a very short period of time, that is also really bad. Like you're, you know... But one of the points I made in my session is like, it doesn't have to be a competition. <laughs> like yeah. which one is more bad? It doesn't matter. They're both bad. So I guess um, a good question would be how hard is it to tell if something is hypovolemic? Hypovolemic? Yeah. Um, if it's like moderately hypovolemic, it's, it generally is not very hard to tell. We know the things to look for. Yeah. Um, you know, we... So we, you should be before you give a lot of fluids you should it's easy to check yes yes so and so check. that's the point if they are not showing signs of hypovolemia the va the vast majority of cases with hypovolemia it's pretty clear i can see if it was like really hard to tell yeah and it's like oh it's just safe to do this yeah but if it's easy but to and tell, that's what i think people have thought for a really long time myself included was like eh, give a little fluid bolus like what can it hurt and the answer is probably more than we've recognized um, now that's not to say that if you give one fluid bolus to a patient that didn't actually need it. And when I say fluid bolus, like my typical strategy and what I think a lot of people's strategy is, is like you have a patient that you think might be in hypovolemic shock. You're going to give it 10 mils per kilo of an isotonic crystalloid like LRS that like if you took a normal patient, a normal person, a normal animal, healthy animal, and you just did that, you gave them a bolus over 10 minutes or so they would be fine. They would yeah. be fine. I think the thing you're talking about is more, it's like something that two or three times maintenance fluid for the entire stay at the hospital for a week. That's yeah. Well, and it doesn't have to be quite that much, but yes, that is more. So there's a couple things. There's one, um, and this is when it can happen and it can happen. Like, no, like, there's a number of scenarios where I see this happen. And that I think is where we need to focus on avoiding the fluid overload. Um, one, and I get this cause I've been in this conundrum before you have an animal that comes in with signs of shock and the most common type of shock that we see is hypovolemic shock. And the treatment for hypovolemic shock is to give them volume. And we often do that in the form of isotonic crystalloids. And so you give a bolus of isotonic crystalloids. And if they don't really respond very well, you have to ask yourself a question like, is it because I, I wasn't treating the right thing? 
or I just didn't give enough. Yeah, more power. And both of those are possible, right? And so for me, how sure am I that this is hypovolemic shock? I'm more likely to give another bolus. Um, and if I'm like, well, I was not that convinced from the get-go, but I did this as kind of like a, a trial to see, like, did they respond? Then I may I may stop at that point. Like one 10 mil per, 10 mil per kilo bolus in a patient that I was not super confident had hypovolemic shock, I'm going to stop and I'm going to like look at other things. Because one where like it wouldn't make a difference, you should be able to tell pretty easily. Yeah. Like and if one bolus doesn't work. Yeah. If it, again, if it was like a subtle one, now if they've lost a lot of fluids and they're really, really behind one 10 mil per kilo bolus may not be enough. It may not be enough to make a big difference. But that's more obvious than it, you, we wouldn't usually, be like, yeah, usually oh, from the history or something, I'm going to have a reason to think that they're hypovolemic. So I'm going to be pretty convinced and I'm going to say, go ahead and give some more, go ahead and give some more. And I'm going to do that, you know, two or three times unless I was like, I'm kind of suspicious of my diagnosis in the get-go, then I'm not going to do it two or three times. But even if I was fairly confident in my diagnosis, after I've given like three 10 mil per kilo boluses, so 30 mils per kilo or roughly a third of its total blood volume, I've now given in the form of salt water, that needs to give me pause. Either why is what I'm doing not working? Because am I giving, like, are they actively hemorrhaging? In which case this patient needs blood products, which is possible. Plus I need to figure out a way to stop the bleeding if it's blood loss. Um, or I've misdiagnosed it and it's just not hypovolemia. Um, or it was hypovolemia and something else. And now I have to treat that something else. Because if you have any patient who is missing more than 30 mils per kilo of their blood volume and is still alive, then either it's ongoing losses and I need to figure that out. Or it's a zombie <laughs> or it's missing something else. Like there's, there's something else going on because it's just, it's very uncommon that they're going to be missing that much and still be alive when they come to you. Right. So um, what are the common like causes for hypovolemia that everybody should so blood look loss, for in their history? Blood loss is, is the big one. So any history of trauma, is going to be a, a huge one. And so animals that come in after being hit by a car or attacked by other animals or something like that, hypovolemic shock is like top of the list. And that is a reasonable thing to make the assumption and, and go for and, and yes, do that. Um, the other things are going to be gastrointestinal losses. So severe vomiting and diarrhea, especially it's been very severe or it's been going on for a while. So anything where the animal is leaking. Yes, that's exactly right because that's how you lose fluid. <laughs> That's how you lose large volumes of fluid quickly, right? Panting, yeah, you lose a little bit of fluid, but not that fast, you know? Um, and so there's got to be a reason for that loss. Now, you can burn victims would be another one, but they're usually pretty obvious. <laughs> like, burn, like, it's not like you have invisible burns. Like, that's not a thing. So, like, that would be, like, a very uncommon thing that we see, but they, they lose a lot of fluids Maybe that it's way. one of those, like, hairless cats you might not notice. <laughs> no, I'm pretty sure you would still notice. It looks the um, same. They can have, like, an effusion into either into their belly or into their chest, but then you're going to have signs of the effusion and you're probably going to need to address that. And so, yeah, the, the main, the two main things are going to be blood loss, um, or gastrointestinal losses. And, you know, people typically notice the vomiting and the diarrhea. So heavy leaking, heavy leakage. Um, occasionally animals come in without a history, um, because, you know, it's an outdoor animal. It was missing for a couple of days and the owners don't really know. Um, I'm still probably going to make the assumption that it's, it's got some loss, um, either because it's been out and sick and it's, you know, super dehydrated, so dehydrated that it is now also hypovolemic or it had some trauma and that's why it was missing and it just like stumbled back eventually, uh, you know, or you know, something. I'm, that's a reasonable assumption to make. But there are other types of shock. And the interesting thing, and I was trained this way and I taught this for a long time, that the appropriate treatment for um, 
two of the other three types of shock is a fluid bolus. And that sort of may also be true, but maybe not. Maybe there needs to be more nuance to that conversation. Um, so the four types of shock, there's different ways to categorize shock. Um, but the four that I liked that I teach and that I think simplifies things is really nice. Um, it's from some human textbooks and some veterinary textbooks, but again, if this isn't what you use, that's okay. But the four that I tend to, to teach and to use are hypovolemic shock, of which underneath that falls hemorrhagic shock. There is, um, I like obstructive shock. Um, so that would be things like a GDV or a pericardial effusion. There is um, maldistributive shock, which sometimes gets called distributed sh distributive shock. Um, a sub subcategories under that are septic shock and anaphylactic shock. And then um, cardiogenic shock. So those are the pump failure. The heart is failing um, either from an arrhythmia or structural problem, something like that. And um, that's the one type of shock that people like don't give fluids, which is appropriate. But the other ones you do. And... But those aren't the problem. So if you have pure obstructive shock, then you need to relieve the obstruction. And that is true. And we teach that when we talk about obstructive shock. But we also say, oh, but you can also give a fluid bolus because that's going to help overcome the, the pressure gradient that is causing the lack of blood flow to the heart. There's a physical obstruction. And if you can increase the pressure on one side, you can overcome that obstruction. While that is true, um, that is arguably potentially causing of relative fluid overload once you've relieved the obstruction. Now, a lot of the causes of obstructive shock probably also have a component of hypovolemic shock as well. Um, GDV would be a typical example where they probably also have some degree of hypovolemia. So I'm not super worried about in those cases. Same thing with like uh, a septic shock. Well, again, it's just like most of those things you're going to fix pretty fast. Well, you, most of them you have to. Yeah. So <laughs> yeah. even if you did have it on fluids the whole time, right? it wouldn't. It wouldn't do that much damage. No, it should not, unless, unless you continue we it keep doing it, right? Unless we go, oh, it had obstructive shock, so we gave it some fluid boluses. It's like, well, no, we're giving fluid boluses for the hypovolemic shock. It may temporarily help the obstructive shock until we relieve the obstruction. But if I have to give a lot of fluids before I can relieve the obstruction, temporarily that may help. But then I need to recognize once the obstruction is relieved, I've given them more fluids than needed. And I may need to actually back off a little bit. Yeah, you don't probably don't need to do anything. Yeah. Um, and so, and that might be okay. But we seem to think that if they need fluids at the beginning of the case, they will need it forever. Yeah. And, and that's where I think I need to, um, I, I've had to kind of readjust my own thinking and, um, and, and really consider like how much loss do I think this patient really had? What degree of, you know, hypovolemia specifically was contributing to the shock. Now, I don't want to make it seem like we can quantify this. Like we can't, we, we, we cannot possibly say, okay, you have uh, this degree of shock and 17% is from this and 82% uh, is from that. And another 4% is, or whatever math was left. Um, we can't. So it's really hard. Um, but I just, I think if we think about it, that's going to be what's really helpful is the, is the consideration that did I give fluids that was needed? Um, and if I gave more than was needed, that's, that's quite all right. I could just stop giving some right now and let the animal just take what I've already given and be like, all right, do, do the, the smart thing with it, which we're lucky. And they usually do. They're usually pretty good about if we give them fluids, they put it where it goes, um, which is cool. The other thing, the other scenario besides like treatment of shock where I think the um, there's a good reason to give fluids even though that's not the specific reason for the problem is under general anesthesia. 
Um, so general anesthesia, the drugs that we have to give, whether they're the gas inhalants or the injectable drugs, um, pretty commonly, most of them, if, like the inhalants, pretty much all of them are going to cause some degree of vasodilation. So the blood vessels are going to open up, spread out, and that increases their volume. But the, the blood that was filling it has not changed and therefore the pressure drops. And so while under anesthesia, we monitor the blood pressure and if their blood pressure falls and they start to show signs, um, you know, of, of maybe shock, then one of the common things that is done is to give a fluid bolus. Because if you have increased the capacity of your, of your um, vasculature and you increase the volume inside it, like the pressure will go back up. And that mm -hmm. is true. And that makes sense. Um, we sometimes also can counteract that vasodilation with vasoconstricting drugs. Um, and that's a good thing to do as well. But it's, it's actually appropriate for the anesthetist or the anesthesiologist to give, to give a fluid bolus to raise the, the blood pressure while under the effects of general anesthetics. However, after anesthesia, when those blood vessels tighten back up, we don't have to keep giving them the fluids. And if they did get more fluid while under anesthesia than was strictly necessary to replace missing or lost fluid, then after surgery, after the anesthetic event, we should back off on the fluids. And that that's not something that I think is standard practice. I think we, like it's this weird idea that like when they're under anesthesia, um, whatever happens, it's, it's like anesthesia is Las Vegas. And whatever yeah. happens in anesthesia stays in anesthesia. It doesn't matter. It doesn't impact anything we do beyond that. And that's just not true. Like a lot of major things happen, even if it's um, a non-surgical procedure and like no incision was ever made, like the anesthesia has an effect and we need to take that into account when we manage the patient after anesthesia. And so it's, it is 100%, in my opinion, it's totally okay if the patient got a little bit of fluid overload under anesthesia to help maintain blood pressure. Now, if you're having to keep giving fluids, you need to switch to doing something to adjust the blood pressure, like, um, again, uh, um, vasoconstricting medications like uh, catecholamines, or you need to adjust your anesthetic plan, turn off the gas, turn it down, something like that. But like a little bit of that is okay. And then you go, okay, um, the patient lost very little fluid under this, you know, under this anesthetic event. I had to give a bunch to keep blood pressure up. So after the procedure, after the anesthetic event, I'm not going to give fluids for a while. Right. And, and we know we quantify, we write it down on the record how much fluid they got while under anesthesia. So we we can we can figure this out and it, it doesn't have to be that um, that complicated. But when we give them a whole lot and then oftentimes after anesthesia, people think they need to stay on high rates of fluids. Um, and that's just not the case. It, it's not often the case, not unless they have some separate reason to have a bunch of continuing losses. Do you chart in the medical record like the total volume of liquids given over time. We should. And like um, the weight of the animal. Yes. So, so you can see when it's like, oh, we've given um, yeah. four liters <laughs> of water to yeah. this kitten. So we chart that, but what has to happen with all of that charting is somebody's got to do the math, right? Somebody has to add. So both of those things have to happen. So yeah, you use metric, it's pretty easy. So a liter is a kilogram. No, that part isn't the issue. What I mean is you're giving like fluid in several different ways and somebody mm -hmm. has to go through and be like, oh, okay, the IV better. fluids were here. There was this bolus given there. There was this medication given here. There was this extra food given with the, the or this fluid was given with the food through the NG tube, the feeding tube. And, and somebody has to add all that up. Yeah, it seems like the, and then take the away medical record program should be able to do something like that pretty easily. You know, we're still using paper at Virginia Tech, right? Not for much longer. Uh, another like month and a half and we should have a real electronic medical record. Yeah. Um, they probably can actually. Yeah, it's if you, you should ask. But you still have to enter that. Like you still have to enter the numbers. Somebody has to say this is what was given. Yeah. But yeah, we're doing that now. Because I know um, that was the thing when I was working in the restaurant. It. We yeah. had 
uh, you push the button for a sandwich and you could program it to where it, it said like how much lettuce, tomato, yeah. blah, blah, blah. So it would keep track of your inventory until you were like where yeah, things are matching Yeah, but that's like up. managing food. That's super crucial that we have that down to the, the thing. This <laughs> is medicine. Like who cares? You know, we'll just like throw some over there and see what's like. No, <laughs> we absolutely. And, and folks are charting it. They are. They're writing these things down, but we're sometimes missing the step of um, are we matching that, that to the ounce? Everybody, like if people looked at it, like giving a whatever maintenance was, oh, it's only like twice, whatever. But if they were to see like the amount Numbers. of water you've pumped into something, yeah, that would be like, oh, no, that doesn't make sense. Everybody knows what two liters of water looks like. Yeah. Because there's like and a bottle of soda. And on the inside soda. of your cat, it's insane. It's a lot. Yeah. <laughs> Um, but we, we have to do the math. Now, the other thing that we is harder, right? So we talk about what you're saying is like ins and outs, um, is measuring how much have we put in, but then how much are they putting out? Right. Because yeah. how much their urine, the urine is about two thirds of the output each day, roughly. Um, some is lost through respiration, sweating. If you're a species that sweats, um, through defecation, like we call those insensible losses cause they're difficult to measure essentially, essentially, whereas the sensible or the urinary losses we can quantify. Um, but so we do try to track that, but you also hit the nail on the head with body weights. Like if you give an animal two liters of extra fluid, it is going to gain two kilograms of body weight, like approximately. It's not distilled water, but for like, for yeah. what we're doing, it's pretty darn close. close and enough. so, yeah, like that, and that's what we do. Um, so when we are tracking um, fluid monitoring, um, this is, these are the things I suggest doing is when possible, try to quantify or at least estimate the ins and outs, keep track of what we're putting in and, you know, even just sort of estimate the outs. Body weights, um, at least once a day, more often if it's a patient that's at great risk for becoming either hypo or hypervolemic. The other thing I like to use um, that I, I think is underutilized is urine specific gravity. Um, because the kidneys, if the kidneys are working, um, their job is to adjust the amount of urine that is made based on what the water balance is in the body. So if you have not enough water in your body, your kidneys go, well, less should go into the urine then. And so you'll have more concentrated urine. But if we are giving too much fluid, your kidneys are like, let's get rid of that extra fluid. They try their best to help. Sometimes we're just like, let's just keep pounding you with fluids. The kidneys are like, I'm trying, what, what is so going on? So specific gravity density? Is that, because um, what I, I think, yes. the terms of stuff I know. It's density. So essentially, so we use, like we put a drop of urine on a refractometer and pure water would be one. Yeah. And then normal, like isosthenuric, meaning um, iso, the same, um, is going to be where the urine is the same density or specific gravity of plasma, of what you'd expect plasma mm -hmm. to be. And so if it's higher than plasma, it's more concentrated than plasma, um, then um, we are holding on to extra water. And if it's more dilute than plasma, or if it's really close to plasma, then we're probably getting rid of extra water. And um, I think a lot of our, so that's something we can use. And a normal, quote unquote, normal specific gravity for like a typical patient that's just eating, drinking, doing its normal thing is probably around 1020 or 1.020. We just okay, say cool. 10, 1.020 to yeah, 1.030. Yeah, that's what I was like. That seems like a pretty sensitive test. It is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it's super sensitive. Um, it doesn't work if the patient has... Um, kidney injury because then um, with kidney injury, they can lose their concentrating ability. And so the urine will just be isostenarch. It will be the same as plasma. Just whatever you get is, is what goes out. But so is, for the for other like patients, a, no. Uh, like a patient that has chronic kidney stuff. Right. Is there a baseline that you can use for or is it no. all over the place all the time? No, it will be 
the same all the time. It will be one point. It'll be between one point zero zero eight. Well, no, it's not. It's just isosceneric. It will be plasma. You will pee. So out you wouldn't be same. able to tell, right? So you can't use it in those okay. patients. Um, the other situations where you can't use it is if they're on a medication that causes them to not be able to concentrate their urine. So if, if it's a patient that's on, the most common one would be a diuretic like furosemide. Furosemide forces them to not concentrate their urine, so they will pee out isosceneric urine. It will be one point, it will be what we say, 1008 to 1012. Um, so, or, you know, 1010 would be technically specifically isosceneric, um, but there's a little bit of a range there. So yeah, it's not a baseline, like that's any patient. Like if you were to drink a bunch of water, um, the next time you pee, that will be, your urine will be about 1010, 1.010. But yes, it's very sensitive and it's underutilized. And the yeah, thing I always thought funny, you, I hear you say specific gravity all the time. I was like, I'm pretty sure that's density, but for like what uh, you say with doesn't uh, really uh. make sense with density. Well, you're, you're the one using a fancy word. Don't uh me. No, that's just what it is. It's the speci- it's the gravity. It's very specific <laughs> to the urine. Uh, <laughs> I don't know. So this is just a fancy way of saying density. Stupid scientists. Um, But we're not. I don't know that we're really, I don't know that we're measuring the density. We're like looking at how light refracts through the urine. Yeah. And I don't know. There's some things that can throw it off. Whatever. Um, we can have a whole different podcast where we can talk about nomenclature and what you don't like that we use from you the wait, physics you world. The way things are named. Yeah. You can have a whole Another conversation. Another fancy word for it. Yeah. Nomenclature. You can, you can, you can. I want someone who's seven to not be able to understand what I'm saying. This podcast is not for seven-year-olds. <laughs> I mean, if you're a seven-year-old out there, I mean, good for you. Please write in, let us know. And I apologize um, for, you know, thinking that you wouldn't be listening. But like, really, this is not made for, for you. your snobbish jargon. Listen, <laughs> listen. So uh, anyway, physics boy, um, you've got me all thrown off now. But I think that, so one thing that I was taught, I don't remember like if I was taught or I just heard this all the time when I was um, early on in practice. It was like, oh yeah, if they're on fluids, you can't use specific gravity. Specific gravity isn't going to help because they're going to be. And I was like, I thought about that later and I was like, wait, they can still concentrate their kid- their urine. Their kidneys should still be able to concentrate their urine. It's just that we had accepted for so long that they're yeah. just all going to be fluid <laughs> overloaded. just messing them all up. Yeah. And like that, that is a common thing. Oh, you know, it's, it's isosceneric, but you know, they're on fluids. I'm like, wait, no, they, they don't have to, they can be on fluids and not be isosceneric. We don't have to fluid overload them, but because we were just, fluids are life-saving. And so we're like a little bit is good than a lot is better. And, um, and so now like my target and, and it'd be the, like you can't use a breathalyzer on that person he's been drinking oh yeah that's not gonna be good yeah exactly um and that was just accepted like oh yeah and it's like no no there's nothing that is medically causing them to not be able to concentrate their urine it's us we're just giving them too much water and so anyway um so i think I, uh, specific gravity or density is an underutilized tool when it comes to monitoring fluid therapy in patients with working kidneys who are not on furosemide or like prednisone is a, a steroid. Uh, a lot of the steroids will also um, prevent them from being able to concentrate their urine. So there are certain medications where you're like, okay, that's not going to work. But if they're not on one of those meds or don't have kidney injury, 
then specific gravity is a free and non-invasive way. One piece of the puzzle is not the only thing you should use, but one of the things you can use to monitor fluid therapy because it doesn't have to be collected sterilely. You can, they can pee on the ground. They can pee on their bedding. You can suck up one drop and put it on the refractometer and it can give you a piece of information. So I think that's super underutilized. Um, and then it's just looking for the signs of fluid overload. And this is the other thing I like to harp on. Um, and this is what I was focusing on in the session I gave here at IVEX which is that what people most commonly think about for the signs of fluid overload in a dog or a cat are related to the respiratory system. So that they'll be tachypnic or have a fast respiratory rate or they'll have like clear nasal discharge or something because they're so overloaded. But actually normal lungs are pretty good at protecting themselves from fluid overload. They're designed that way. Um, they're, they're not meant to have water in them. And so they're, they're built differently. Their reflection coefficient is such that you won't get fluid overload in the lungs until late unless the lungs are diseased. But other organs like the kidneys and the gut, which are, whose job is to filter things, are much more filterable. And then so water, like they're much more susceptible to fluid overload um, than other organ systems um, and other tissues. So the, the signs of fluid overload that we all get trained to look for are signs of like late stage fluid overload in most patients. And so... Um, but they're pretty, they're fairly obvious ones, but it's like, yeah, it's kind of, it's kind of late. Um, and yeah, so really I, done the damage. exactly. So I'm advocating people to look for signs of fluid overload earlier for more subtle things. Um, now they're subtle and they can also be caused by other stuff. Right. And that's true of the, the fast breathing, the tachypnea and the nasal discharge, but in a patient that doesn't have any other reason for it. Um, things, you know, signs in the, the gut could just be the patient's nauseated. It doesn't feel like eating, but it could be regurgitating. It could have ileus. Well, lots of things can cause those, but just because lots of things can cause it doesn't mean we shouldn't consider fluid overload as a cause. So, um, so I think that's the other thing I'm trying to promote um, when I teach this stuff is that there are other signs of fluid overload that may show up a lot earlier in your patients um, and to be on the lookout because like so many things, it's like, uh, you know, if you never test for Addison's, you won't find it. That's a disease, an endocrine disease that dogs and yeah, I think, mostly dogs can get. I think I've heard you talk about that. The students like to to say this one has Addison's. Or, yeah, it's like the it's great like one of the like very it's, common. It's pretty. It's a pretty rare disease, but it can it can look like so many different things that if but if you don't test for it, you won't find it. And so, you know, there are a lot more tests. More often than not, when we test for Addison's, it turns out not to be Addison's. But if you never test for Addison's, you will never diagnose Addison's. Um, and so fluid overload is kind of like that. If you if you never look for it, you won't ever find it. Um, unless it's really severe. And you had like, I remember when I was a student, we had, uh, I had a cat case. And um, this, is, <laughs> this is actually kind of funny. I, I think back to it, I was like, I probably was wrong. But um, the cat came in for, I don't even know. I don't remember what its problem was. But I thought I heard a heart murmur on it. I thought it was a quiet one, but I thought I heard a heart murmur on it. And um, the clinician was like, I don't think I hear one. I was like, oh, okay, I'm probably wrong. And then um, we had it on fluids overnight for something or other. I think it had GI signs. And for whatever reason, instead of being, I think it was like supposed to be on 20 mils an hour of fluid or something. And it accidentally went on 200 mils an hour of fluids. This was an accident. Like it wasn't intentional. I mean, th this, this kind of thing happens. But the cat got like 
yeah, 10 times like until the bag ran out and the tech was like, oh crap, that was wrong. Like, I think it got disconnected for some reason. And then the rates got mixed up between that and the dog that was in a cage near it or something like that. I don't, I don't remember exactly what the reason, but that cat was like, it was very jello-y and, and, um, definitely fluid overloaded accidentally that stunk. But I remember the next day it's like, oh, it has a fluid, it has a heart murmur now. (laughs) (laughs) because <laughs> um, we had thinned out the blood quite a bit. But um, yeah, the clinician was very unhappy about that. And that cat, again, we turned off the fluids and just based, I don't remember if we gave it any furosemide, but I think we just waited and let it pee out. But like, it was remarkably tolerant of that. Um, but we got like, I think back now, I'm like, man, what other damage did we potentially cause? Again, animals can be pretty forgiving. They can get dehydrated and they can get hypovolemic to some degree and they can recover from that. But we have to address like that doesn't mean we should just keep doing it just because like they can do OK for a little while doesn't mean we don't treat it. Um, but at any rate, fluid, fluid overload can happen in more subtle ways than that. Um, so what are like signs it's like hey you don't need to give a bunch of foods like if they're drinking and peeing if they are eating on their own they they very unlike it's very unlikely that they need iv fluids um because animals who will eat will drink when they are thirsty and uh unless they have severe excessive losses um, and and the, the most common example where they have excessive losses and just won't drink enough is going to be like a cat with chronic kidney disease. And a cat with chronic kidney disease probably has an obligatory polyuria, meaning it's it can't concentrate its urine. So whatever it is presented to the kidneys, isostenuria, right? Like the, it's going to filter just directly across. And so the concentration of the plasma is going to be the concentration of the urine and it's going to be too much. And so that cat will have to drink more in order to keep up with it. But cats are like, I don't want to drink more. Yeah, I think my, they one of my brother's cats had that and they yeah. had to like give fluids under give the skin. It a shot and it gets like a little like bump of water. And it would... Yeah, a little fluid under the skin probably. Yeah. And so there are some situations where they just, they won't drink quite enough to keep up with their losses, but that's pretty uncommon and usually only in chronic situations. One of the, the more common things that I will see is like a, a dog or cat or whatever comes in with some diarrhea, but they otherwise feel okay. Like they're eating um, and otherwise fine. And people want to give them fluids, either subcutaneous, like under the skin or hospitalize them. I'm like, well, but, but they're eating. And then I usually ask them like, how about, think about the last time you had diarrhea and you, you had extra losses, like you lost more fluid. Why didn't you go to the hospital and get IV fluids? Or, you know, maybe some sub-Q, which sounds miserable. Um, mm-hmm. We don't have the extra space like dogs and cats do. But And they're like, well, it's true. So how do you prevent from getting dehydrated? I drink more. Why do you think your dog won't do that? Because <laughs> it will. It will. So animals that are eating probably don't need IV fluids. Um, animals that are, you know, and, and if they're not eating, then I'm fine putting them on fluids. But maintenance fluids should cut it. Like that should be enough. Um, the, the other big category of animals who get IV fluids that usually don't need them are those that have ingested some sort of toxin, um, because people want to induce diuresis, which just means polyuria because they think you can quote unquote, (laughs) this fancy word just means this other fancy word. Oh yeah. But every, what's a normal word for it? Uh, increased urine output. Cool. Yeah. Too much pee. Um, and they think that making them pee too much will, uh, will get rid of the toxin faster. Um, and that's a common misunderstanding that is just not true. 
for the vast majority of toxins, that's not true. And, and even for the toxins where you can increase the excretion through the kidneys, it's rarely through just inducing diuresis, just making them pee more. Yeah. If that you was the truth, then your water the filter wouldn't work. Exactly. Exactly. So, um, yeah. You can't, it does it does not work that way. So you have to um, either manipulate the filter, manipulate the kidney, so you can change the pH of the patient, and that can sometimes of some things that can alter the rate of excretion. Um, or there are other things like if it's a biologic like calcium, you can manipulate the kidney into getting rid of more calcium through other means and partly through fluids. But most of the time, just you just suck need, it out. You just need to keep the kidneys well hydrated like if they're just uh, if the perfusion of the kidneys is normal then the kidneys are going to do great and let them do their thing but you can't water the kidneys and grow new nephrons they're not plants they're not you're not just gonna you can't the kidneys can be all they can be but they can't be more than they can be Mm -hmm. (laughs) just like in the military be all that you can be but they can't ask for more than that that's unfair but we do that to the kidneys a lot we ask them to do more than they can do and that's just rude so yeah so those were those are the things. And so that's what a bunch of us were talking about at IVEX this year is um, good fluid stewardship. Um, fluids are a drug and should be treated just like anything else. And we should be mindful of the dose. We should be mindful of the duration. When it's no longer needed, we should stop it. If we give too much, we should stop giving it. Um, if we haven't given enough, we should give more. And we just need to monitor the effects of it really closely. Think about it. We need to think about it. Have a reason. It turns out that's true for uh, 100% of medicine um, will work much better if you think about it. Except yeah. for CBD. <laughs> that works for everything. I haven't heard that many people at this conference talking about it. I think I heard... This is Colorado. One, they hear about it enough. Well, I mean, like, uh, just yeah, like... I know. I know. People like... Because there's like a dispensary, I guess Everywhere. it's two miles away. Oh, that's really far, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> we walked but, that... How many times this week did we walk the two miles? Uh, four or five. Four or five, yeah. We got our steps in. But I only heard one person... Like with a, like overhearing a, like a drug story. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'm pretty good at overhearing people, so. <laughs> you are. I am not. Apparently I somebody did a bunch of alien, which I don't know what it is. Oh, that, and like then, that's a noun? Yeah. And then they went out and if, if you're the person that listens to our podcast and this is you, they went out and uh, like, oh. what, I think they went to go play cards with someone and then they were going to go to the, the like fire pit things and their friends were, th- I mean, this was their friends talking about this other person. It's like, yeah, we said that's not a good idea, but they did it anyway. And we're like, oh, I guess hopefully we see you tomorrow. What? So somebody was doing alien, which is a type of drug. I don't know. Yeah. It might be like a name for some CBD thing. And then, and then they went out to a fire pit Yeah. and their friends just left them there after having done drugs. No, they didn't. They didn't leave them. They told them not to go. But then they didn't listen. Yeah, they probably had done the alien also. Well, when we went to the fire pit tonight to do s'mores, I didn't see any bodies lying around. So <laughs> it had rained. Oh, it rained. <laughs> so it got washed away. Oh Lord, um, no, there hasn't been a whole lot of that. Um, yeah. Anyway, so yeah, that was that was the other uh, that was like the big for me. This was not the big theme of the conference, but the thing for me that was like really gratifying. Yeah, all these people agree and they're talking about the same stuff. And there's lots of us that are like passionate about this and, and want to get the word out. And it adds more credibility when there's more of us saying it than just me being like, yep, I know it's different from what everyone else says, but I'm right and they're wrong. Mm-hmm. 
Um, so I'm it's like the only one that doesn't believe in drowning. <laughs> it feels like that sometimes, um, but it's not true. And it's really awesome to find out that it's not true. So yeah, so that was that was a, a cool thing that uh, came up multiple times this week that makes so me criticalists happy. believe you. But now, yeah. now I just have to convince toxicologists. Yes. And internal medicine people. Yes. And surgeons and um, <laughs> anesthesiologists. Yeah. Anesthesiologists are, we're heading in the right direction there. They've definitely reduced like the, the tip, the recommended like fluid rate for under anesthesia. Um, but I think like I've had cases where under anesthesia, they gave a bunch of fluids. And then if no one else is around, um, they'll like, if a criticalist isn't around to tell them not to, they'll recommend like keeping an animal on high rates of fluids afterwards. And I'm just like, no, 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 no. Once you're done poisoning them, we leave it be like, leave. <laughs> I like to make that joke that, uh, anesthesia, cause that's what you're doing. You're giving them poison. Um, it's a controlled poison and it's for a purpose, but you're poisoning. Oh, it's them. like your strange planet thing. I would like a, was it a mild, mild poison? poison? Yeah. <laughs> and that's alcohol, mild poison. Can I, let's, let's go out for mild poisons. Um, yeah. Anyway. So yeah, that's the, that's the talk for today. So thinking about fluids and good fluid stewardship. Um, so yeah, the, the theme again is think. <laughs> All right, we'll catch you next time. Bye.